I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced in the stunning surrounds of Crawford School, the leading graduate policy school in the Asia-Pacific region. We have a fantastic range of short courses and degrees on offer to kickstart your policymaking career. Check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au. And today, Paul Vivel will be joining me in the studio. Hey, Paul. G'day, Yulia. How are you going? Very well, Paul. Paul is a research fellow here at Crawford School, and he is also an economist working on energy, climate change, and water. And we've just found out that Paul will be staying with us for a while now that he's a research fellow. Great to hear that, Paul. Thanks, Yulia. Paul, what has caught your eye in the wide world of policy in the past week? One of the things that's come up this week that's been quite interesting is it turns out that in the middle of this month, uh, the government has started, uh, the national government has started a process to examine opportunities for uh, further abatement from climate policy. And this is quite, quite an interesting thing. It's a good thing because, as is fairly well known, Australia looks like it's not really on track to be able to meet its 2030 targets. So almost, initially sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. And, and to be able to look at how we can have some economy-wide uh, reduction of emissions rather than what has really happened in the Emissions Reduction Fund so far, which is the main policy mechanism, it's really focused on vegetation and waste methods. So it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to be looking into how we can improve our uh, climate policy framework. I guess the issue is one of process, really. So my understanding from the reports that have emerged is that this is quite a sudden process. Uh, it's one which is headed up by a four-person panel uh, led by the outgoing chair of the Business Council of Australia, uh, which is a, a private industry uh, group, and looking to engage with industry and, and, and stakeholders on how to improve the Emissions Reduction Fund. So quite an open consultation process there. Well, it doesn't seem like it is really an open consultation process. Uh, it's one that seems that it has been leaked. Okay. And... The issue with that is, is that at the same time, there is a very public consultation process which is going on at the moment and has been going on for a few months uh, that's overseen by the Climate Change Authority. And the Climate Change Authority is an independent uh, statutory authority and its role is really to look at, okay, how can we manage our climate policy? How can we improve it? Now, the report through that process, and it's a public submission process is due by the end of the year. So it seems a little bit curious that there is this very sudden, quick, fairly opaque process, uh, which is going on right now, parallel to a very public process that is being led uh, by by part of the government. Listeners, what do you think? Why is, are there two parallel processes going on here, as Paul outlined? Do get in touch with us. There's a range of ways to do that. 
You can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. But the very best way to come and is to come and join us on our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum pod into the search bar and you will find us there. You'll be able to get in touch directly with Martin, Lydia, me and other familiar faces from the Policy Forum pod team. We also regularly ask you to contribute to our podcasts by sending us your questions that we can then ask our panelists. These contributions are really invaluable to us, so please keep sending them in. Now, let's take a look at the topic for this episode, because today we want to discuss the regulation decriminalization of currently illicit drugs in Australia. Yes, Julia, we do. And uh, I think this is a really interesting topic. Australia's drug policies are, are complex, and they vary between states and territories. And to give you just one example of that complexity, the Australian Capital Territory, where, where we live here in Canberra, has passed a bill in late September that would allow for the possession of cannabis, up to 50 grams per person and a, and a maximum of four plants per household. But cannabis remains a prohibitive drug under the Commonwealth law. So that means that users in the ACT, maybe they could face jail time, maybe not. It's, it's, a, it's a bit unclear at this point. And the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has opposed the bill, saying that it was in breach of the UN drug conventions. Now, another example of opposing views on, on state and f the federal level is also the issue of, of pill testing. And again, the ACT, where we live here, uh, has conducted a trial of pill testing at the Grooving the Moo Festival earlier this year in April. Now, proponents of the trial, they've said that it prevents users from harm and opponents, on the other hand, in the federal government, seem to be really concerned about pill testing in, in, as it, you know, their perception is that in some form it could condone or even encourage drug use. From these examples, we can really see that you know, despite pushes to, to decriminalise drugs, uh, attempts to minimise harm are mostly being pursued through prohibition uh, so far, and, and particularly that's the conventional thing to do uh, at the federal level. So today uh, we want to ask, what's the right approach to drug policy if we want to minimise harm? We've got a really great lineup to help us try and answer this question. And let's hear from Yulia now about who we've got on the panel today. So for this discussion, we have Professor Desmond Manderson from the ANU College of Law and ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. He is an ARC Futures Fellow and has just recently written an opinion piece for Fairfax Media commenting on the new ACT cannabis law. We also have David, Dr. David Caldecott, who is an emergency medicine consultant at the emergency department of the Calvary Hospital here in Canberra. And he's also a spokesperson for the Australian Science Media Centre on issues of illicit drug use. And we also have Dr. Tracy Fenwick, who's the director of the Australian Centre for Federalism and a lecturer in the School of Politics in the College of Arts and Social Sciences. She has also written a piece for Fairfax Media recently, commenting on the complexity of state and federal level legislation of cannabis and taking a look at Canada's and the US's approaches to cannabis legalization. So really a fantastic lineup. We're very excited to hear from them. So for now, Let's hand over to Paul and the panel. G'day, Des. Hi, nice to be here. Hello, David. Hey, Paul. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. Now let's get into it. All right. Uh, Australia has a complex array of illicit drug-related policies varying between states 
and also our territories as well. Now, drug policy in Australia can be broadly categorized as, as tough, really emphasizing prohibition. But with 1,794 drug-induced deaths, 2017 saw the second highest rate of dr- drug mortality on record. And in 2016, it was estimated that Australians spent over $9.3 billion on recreational drugs. Now, starting off with, with you, Des, we might go around, uh, around the table and, and just ask, what's your opinion? Is it, is it time that Australia reassesses its illicit drug policies, considering those sorts of numbers? Well, look, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence from all sorts of sources, from history, from sociology, from public health, from economics, that the prohibitionist model of drugs that we've had uh, in this country, roughly speaking, for most of the, the 20th century, uh, has been a failure, that, it's, that what it actually does is cause increased harm. Uh, both in terms of the criminalization of drugs and in terms of the public health outcomes uh, in comparison to a harm minimization approach which would focus on, in some ways, a more tolerant approach. And we've been seeing some movement towards those in a number of a number of areas. As you know, the ACT has just moved in some ways to legalize small amounts of cannabis uh, and decriminalization and an effort to move away from a kind of a, uh, a police enforcement-led approach specifically to small levels of cannabis use is not unique to the ACT and has been mirrored in some ways by most of the jurisdictions in Australia. So those moves moves are happening. It's just a matter of facing up to reality. Thanks, Des. And what do you reckon, David? Oh, I think the, the jury's left the building. I mean, it's uh, a nonsense to be uh, trying to pursue this approach, uh, particularly in the face of what's going on around in the rest of the world. I mean, you have a, a situation uh, where the person who was uh, responsible for uh, the changes in Portugal, um, now the Secretary General of the United Nations. The world has moved on and countries are flocking to a health-based approach uh, towards drugs. And I think part of the problem here is um, we are very much embroiled in the politics of a health policy. The politics is superseded the outcomes that can be measured anywhere. And I mean, and that's particularly clear in, in the ACT, where in some ways it's been a mountain out of a molehill. Mm. The federal government has gone all kind of, you know, postal on the ACT for a very minor change in a legal structure, which has actually been in place and working moderately well for the last 30 years. Yeah. And the best way to sum that up from as far as the locals is concerned, their attitude towards that sort of response has been meh. Yeah. And Tracy, what do you think? What's the, what do you reckon? Is, is it time that Australia has another go at, at drug policy? Um, yeah, as a political scientist, I'm less of a of a drug policy expert, but I definitely think the global move towards legalization and the regulation of cannabis is pretty well unstoppable now. It started. Um, we're expecting, I would say, the next country to legalize nationally. I would expect to be Mexico. So mm-hmm. definitely in the Americas, it's really uh, Uruguay was first, Canada, Mexico, and as everybody's speaking. Um, there is a, a, a distinct uh, possibility that the U.S. will federally also legalize within the next year or two um, for a variety of different reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. Oh, that's good. That's pretty important, isn't it? Because a lot of the global position on cannabis and drugs policy in, in general has been as a consequence of the U.S. driving the dialogue and nesting aid on the precondition that um, they, whatever country they're providing aid to will um, uh, adapt these 
more traditionally prohibition approaches. If the US moves away from that, then one of the most prominent global drivers of prohibition is just going to drop off the map, leaving Australia in limbo. So we have a, a situation where you know, prohibition doesn't really work. We know that. Uh, that the rest of the world is moving on. And I think you mentioned also, David, uh, a health-based approach. And I think this probably uh, coalesces around ideas around harm reduction policies, which David's mentioned as well, such as pill testing and needle and syringe programs Mm -hmm. moving beyond cannabis. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between illicit drug policies and harm reduction policies? Well, it depends where you are in the world. Um, Prohibition or, in fact, uh, dignified and significant uh, uh, public health policy involving drugs is a very recent thing. It was pretty arbitrary um, prior to the 20th century. Um, And one of the first experiments in prohibition uh, was for alcohol in the United States, which was an abject failure. Um, one of the things that it successfully did, I suppose, uh, is that it did uh, resurrect uh, spirits. Um, so it did uh, mean that alcohol, which was widely available as sort of fairly dilute beers, wines and whatever, um, increased its potency. Um, and that's one of the iron laws of prohibition is that if you prohibit something, you decrease its volume and make it more potent. We've seen that with cannabis. We've seen that with um, opium. We've seen that with um, all of the drugs, in fact, including cannabis. Um, so the concept of a, an academic approach to uh, drugs policies is actually surprisingly recent. So you have prohibition, which is uh, Nancy Reagan's just say no, um, which is, a, is as about as useful for uh, drugs as it is for sex. Um, and young people pay a lot of attention uh, to abstinence-based models as far as sex is concerned. I know that growing up in Ireland, nobody was paying attention. And it's the same globally as far as drugs are concerned. The other option that you can do um, is to acknowledge the fact that um, people are using drugs in the same way as that they're having sex and that we should discourage them from doing so. Um, We should reduce the supply, so that which is available. But when the horse is bolted and the stable door is – it's too late to shut it. We need to acknowledge that we're going to drop whatever harm we can caused by drugs by any means necessary. Um, And that is exactly the same as, say, for example, providing condoms uh, to people uh, when they choose to have sex before marriage so that they don't spread venereal disease or they don't catch venereal disease and they don't have unwanted pregnancies. Harm reduction in um, the drugs policy environment acknowledges the certain fact that there is no such thing. It is a unicorn to expect that we will ever have a drug-free Australia, drug-free America. There are organizations that are called this all around the world and that people will always use drugs and that for that period of life in which they want to use drugs, the penalty shouldn't be their death. So it involves processes which include things like pill testing, which is a tiny drop in the ocean, uh, probably uh, safe consumption rooms. Um, We talk about needle exchange and uh, injecting sites. Um, But in fact, um, globally, we're seeing a move towards drug consumption rooms where people can go and smoke meth or be encouraged to move from a parenteral or intravenous route to a smoked route, um, which is less uh, likely to spread bloodborne disease. Uh, So that's a harm reduction approach, um, acknowledging the reality, the pragmatic reality of drug consumption in society and doing whatever we can to ensure that as few people 
people are, as possible are harmed by that approach. I mean, I think I just come in on that point. I mean, I think, I think there is a fundamental difference between what we would call zero tolerance mm. and harm minimization. And two, in fact, I think, I think the first is that zero tolerance thinks that drug use is essentially just a bad thing and the less of it, the better. And zero tolerance aims at reducing the number of people who use even if that increases the harms that are caused by drugs. Use is a moral principle that ought to be lessened even if the people who are stuck using drugs for whatever reason end up with more harms, including, as, as David says in many cases, death or life in prison in America or whatever. Mm. So, whereas harm minimization has exactly the opposite approach. That is, harm minimization is concerned to reduce the harms caused by drugs in society, even if it increases the amount of use. Use is not a moral point as far as harm minimization is concerned. What's the moral point is what are the harms that are being caused from our regime? So harm minimization is, in the extreme example, prepared to accept higher levels of use if there are lower levels of harm. Zero tolerance has exactly the opposite assumption, right? So, so that for me is the fundamental difference between the point. And that relates to the second point, which the zero tolerance is fundamentally ideological. It's about a moral position and the stand that is taken by governments, and it is not receptive to statistical or other kinds of information about how people actually behave, what the costs actually are, how much it's actually affecting our public health system. So it's essentially ideological uh, and a matter of a kind of a principle which is blind to facts and evidence, whereas harm minimization, because it's non-ideological in this ways, is all about evidence-based uh, approaches to these problems. That, of course, gets to the whole business of how the war on drugs was started, wasn't it? It was started as an ideological uh, approach. Uh, you could argue that you know originally it was started uh, by Anslinger uh, in America, uh, targeting Mexicans uh, in a form of racism. Des has written quite extensively about the targeting of uh, Chinese workers in gold fields in Australia. Um, and the other thing that I would say to what Des's comments were is that you can actually demonstrate the differences between where more people are perhaps using drugs and not being harmed um, in the same way that they're being harmed in environments where a zero tolerance approach um, is implemented. So in Europe, for example, um, the, the darling of the uh, zero tolerance mob uh, in Australia is Sweden. And it's true um, that they prosecute uh, drug consumption very aggressively indeed. And yet more people are killed from drugs in Sweden per capita than in another country like the Netherlands or like Portugal. Portugal has an order of magnitude less deaths from drug drugs than, um, uh, than Australia and close to two orders of magnitude less than um, the United States of America. So the, the, there are modern contemporary examples – this is what's so frustrating for people involved in healthcare is that the really from an academic perspective, from a medical perspective, from a health perspective, there is no more argument for a prohibition or zero tolerance approach to drugs. And thinking about a, a particular case study and the transition that you've talked about globally, I think all of you that's going on and, and focusing that on Australia and particularly in the ACT. Now, earlier this year, the ACT uh, sought to decriminalize the personal use of cannabis, allowing for the possession of up to 50 grams per person, and I think a, a maximum of four, four plants per household. I think that was reduced to two. two. Was it yeah. two? No. Two in the end. And uh, now, 
My understanding is that the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, he's really shown a lot of concern about the health implications of this and around the decriminalization of substance, of, the, of, of this substance. Now, David, as a health professional, do you think that there's any evidence that this decriminalization would lead to increased usage and greater harm? It's a really good question. I think more broadly speaking, we see that in jurisdictions – so the part of your 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 the question as you phrase it is correct and part isn't. Um, there are definitely uh, suggestions in other jurisdictions, and I think part <laughs> part of the thing here is that this is being parsed as something new and dangerous and never been seen before. And how dare we venture into this space? And yet, this sort of approach has been used all around the world. You know for at least the last quarter century. So we, we have evidence that we can look at from elsewhere. A colleague of mine, uh, Bo Kilmer from the RAND uh, Corporation, has written extensively on this, looking at incidents and harm. And I think it's fair to say that there is a possibility, depending on the locals, depending on the, um, um, the, the, the sociology of Canberra, that use could increase. There is next to no evidence whatsoever from any source, anywhere, that harm will increase. Um, and so the, the shift from what currently exists in the ACT to what is being proposed is so small, it is impossible to in, imagine a situation where harm could be increased, particularly when you're dealing with a product that is already less harmful than many of those that can that carry a, a illicit um, approach. No, I, I know we might want to get Tracy, to talk about um, what's been happening in, in Canada and so forth. But I just want to come in to say that, in fact, the what's it called? The National Household Survey, survey mm. which is done by the government every two years, studies drug use. And the ACT, before this legislative change, had the most liberal laws in the country. They also had the lowest level of cannabis use in the country. And the lowest, the, the lowest level of, as I said, the lowest level of drug use in the country and the lowest level of recent cannabis use in the country. So the claim that's being made by the, by the minister that there is some correlation between how liberal the laws are and use is actually contradicted by the minister's own evidence from the, the Australian government itself. And similarly, just sorry to put in again, very broadly, um, if you look at any metric in Australia uh, asking how easy is it for you to acquire medicinal cannabis or uh, adult use cannabis, it's all incredibly easy. The laws themselves for prohibition are having no effect whatsoever. Anybody who wants to smoke cannabis can and does. It's one of the greatest exercises in civil disobedience that Australia has ever endured. Tracy, did you want yeah, to Yeah, I have a couple of points to make. Um, definitely on the first one in terms of use, I, I, I agree with uh, Des and Dave. Canada legalized a year ago, so we do have data. One of the advantages of Canada having legalized, um, we're now going to what's called Cannabis 2.0 in terms of legalization. Um, means that we do have data in terms of who's buying and demand, and it's obviously driven as well by market statistics. We do know in Canada that there are not in there are not drastic increases to consumption post legalization. The numbers are pretty um, um, consistent in terms of the people who consumed cannabis before illegally are now consuming it and buying it legally. Um, which would be the major difference. Um, we don't see any increases in youth consumption either, which was a big aim of the Canadian government, which was to control access of uh, the youth under 18. Um, I do, however, want to be the devil's advocate in the room because I do have some issues in terms of um, on the harm topic. 
Um, my issue there, um, which is again about the governance of regulation, is that I do not feel that subnational efforts to legalize possession that are completely moot on where the drug comes from and how it is obtained will have an effect on reducing the harm that can come specifically from cannabis for the following reason. The legal product is very distinct from the illegal product. Australia grows and produces for medicinal patients some of the highest quality cannabis and cannabinoid products in the world. And the problem with legalizing possession when there's no legalization in terms of also production and manufacturing we get a very irrational policy, and you mentioned alcohol. So it's like the government saying, you can drink alcohol now, but we're not going to offer any quality control, right? So you can make your own moonshine in the backyard, but if you die from it, it's your problem. So that's my big problem with the fact that we've legalized possession in the ACT, but we're completely moot on where you're getting it and what you're buying, which means that you can use it, but you have no idea where it comes from. And the reason that matters is because if if one of the policy, and again, I'm talking politics, if one of the political justifications, regardless of whether it should be bipartisan, and it is getting more bipartisan in the US, one of the justifications is to minimize harm. And by legalizing and allowing also production and manufacturing, so in Canada, all of the supply is national. So you have interprovincial variation that provinces and territories, they decide the age, they decide the location. Municipalities don't have to have cannabis dispensaries if they don't want to. So there's a lot of subnational autonomy to decide things in, in, in terms of legal enforcement, policing. But the actual product has to be grown under a federal license regulated by Health Canada, so that when you buy and you consume the cannabis, you know how much THC mm. is in it, you know how much CBD is in it, it has all of the products. You also know there's no fungus, you know there's no pesticides, because that's all checked by Health Canada. So if we're really going to open a debate in Australia about reducing harm, subnational efforts to legalize possession, I'm not against. I'm saying they don't go far enough. Mm. We have to address the production and supply side of the debate if we really want to reduce, and especially to youth in terms of, so I'm just going to quickly finish with this, but bring in why I don't think Australia should follow the U.S. model, which I call a subnational piecemeal model, where certain states starting with Colorado legalized and then other states did with no national involvement. Because basically what has happened, it, is it has created health risks because you have a vacuum between the subnational laws and an absence of any federal laws and any federal regulations. But had, had that not worked out the way that it did subnationally, what would have been the impetus to drive a federal approach in the United States? What would have – is there a set of circumstances or scenarios where the feds would have just gone, actually, you know, do you know what? We'll all do this all at once, all 50-odd states. Let's do that. My feeling is that this is not something that large conservative governments do 
on their own. It is small communities that drive them. And that's what the ACT is doing here. I think the other point that I would make to yours is that, of course, not all harms uh, associated with drug consumption are med- med- medical harms. Um, and at least in part, the uh, the ACT is addressing the issue of um, legal uh, harm and the um, uh, the the what's the word I'm looking for? Des the uh, stigma. Hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, the, no, you, yeah. the the stigma <laughs> and reducing oh, the yes, stigma yeah. associated with yeah, drug yeah. consumption. Completely agree with you as far as a regulated market is concerned, and it, we're of course moving into that difference between regulation and legislation. Um, but a regulated market would probably be far more successful at reducing medical harm. Um, but that's probably another step that will have to occur. It's um, it's like, how did God invent the eye? He didn't. It evolved. I think I think I think that's a nice point. And and I think just to pick up the point about the the legal harms, which which I think you know that, that it is for me as somebody who studied law and law and history, that's the thing that that in some ways most most. Is I'm most interested in. If if you look again at, at um, national criminal intelligence data about drug prosecutions in the ACT, you see that um, the the expiation notices, in other words, the the decriminalised fine based system that we currently have, is only used sometimes. There's and uh, in fact, more often than not, possession is is prosecuted by arrest. And conviction, rather than by expiation through decriminalised process. So, so yeah. at the moment, there's a discretion to police to choose whether or not they're going to to follow the ACT's decriminalisation model or uh, use the full force and majesty of the criminal law, and that creates strong levels of of temptations for abuse of power, for anomalous uh, prosecutions, for inconsistency, and it just entrenches the the cynicism and the hypocrisy that are the base of the legal system. So really what the ACT is trying to do now is not really law reform. It's just legal honesty. Yeah. And of course, you look at different jurisdictions across um, Australia, um, at the rate of diversion to drug courts, there's substantial differences, mm. um, ideological differences. So WA, um, more, far more people are criminalized than diverted for simple possession uh, than, say, for example, ACT. Um, and again, that speaks to the problems associated with discretion um, because it comes down to ideology in the end. So I, guess- I would agree with David, but I just want to say again and again. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This has come from evidence-based policy in the U.S. and Canada that have both taken different routes, is that legalizing possession, I agree with you, is a step one. Mm. 
And I just want to flag again, though, that step two, the reason why you have to deal with where you buy and purchase it, if it's going adult use and recreational use is going to be legal, is that it can lead to a new black market. It can create a new black market because all of a sudden I can legally possess, but I don't have any legal way of buying it. Mm. And so you create a black market and that's what's happened in the U.S. And that black market, because we're not just talking about bud. We're yeah, not just oh, talking yeah. about smoking weed anymore. We're talking about edibles. We're talking about vaping. And basically right now in the U.S., you have a health crisis because people are buying black market vaping products that have so many chemicals in that they're showing up in emergency wards mm. with respiratory illness and a whole bunch of pneumonia and other things because they've been vaping illegal, low-quality cannabinoid extract, which is not regulated. So again, that's why I'm saying step one is legalizing possession and the stigma, and I understand that. But I still think on Australia, we have to have a national debate and a national discussion in terms of if we're growing it, if we're growing it medicinally, we're going to start exporting it. It's legal to export cannabis manufactured cannabinoids since 2018 for the Commonwealth government. So if we're growing it and we're exporting it, we need to have access as citizens, if you choose to for medicinal or recreational use, you have to have a way to purchase that product. Mm. And yeah, that's. I think that's one of the key things that, that maybe has come out of this discussion is the agreement that maybe you know, that is only the beginning. Uh, decriminalization of, the, of possession is, is only the beginning and there needs to be a whole supply chain approach mm. Um, right from the beginning. So now we've, uh, uh, we're have we dealing with some uh, difficult topics today. So we, we've probably maybe even started off with the easy one, uh, <laughs> ACT's cannabis uh, possession laws, pill testing. Now, cannabis laws are not the only harm reduction policy that's attracted criticism from the federal government. Minister Hunt's also pushed back on the ideas of implementing pill testing at festivals, saying, and, and I quote, the idea that we would be condoning encouraging and supporting the expansion of their consumption is, to my mind, utterly unthinkable. David? That's a complete straw man argument, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. just nonsense that pill testing doesn't do any of those things. I think that the drugs policy in general, but particularly in um, in the area of pill testing, is a fine example for any upcoming youngsters who are looking into drugs policy um, of cultural cognition. Um, there's some virtue signaling going on here. Um, the facts are no longer important in the public utterances about um, drugs policy. Most of what we hear from a political source in Australia about things like pill testing like are factually, demonstrably disprovable. Um, and they are appealing instead to a base, a tribal base, um, which where this whole idea of uh, cultural cognition comes in from. There's some very clever people at Yale who started looking into this as far as gun law is concerned in the uh, United States. And we are seeing more and more in this sort of post-truth world, people aligning themselves to tribes. And these would include, I mean, the Venn diagrams are quite clearly demarcated. Um, you would have people who would have been against uh, the same-sex marriage uh, plebiscite who would also be very much against pill testing. Uh, you, you look at social media and it's quite extreme. Some people think that those people who consume drugs in Australia, they take their choices and they deserve to die if it happens. Um, so we're, we're just feeding into that uh, and um, 
you know, it's actually time for grownups to have a conversation about this. And to be honest, the role of the expert in uh, in Australia is something that transcends even the narrow nature of this discussion. Expertise now, uh, be it through publication, through research, or through just through uh, having been in a field for a period of time, actually doesn't hold the sway that it does in decision of policies. I mean, those kinds of comments, I mean, they, they just make me want to spit, really. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think it's very clear in this case. We've got a very specific kind of proposal. And I don't think there's any doubt that people are dying because we are not doing pill testing. Young people, maybe just taking drugs, you know, once at a music festival or something like mm. that or whatever, and and there are deaths. And there are deaths because there's not – and, again, the evidence on this is very clear, pill testing – will and does save lives. And, and we can point to those lives and we can say, these are the people that you are prepared to sacrifice on the altar of your meaningless ideological rhetoric. Mm. And I think, you know, within that space, you get down to this very base rhetoric um, where people become desperate because there are no longer any facts that they can debate with. I'm preparing a, um, a, a talk uh, for Hobart uh, in a month's time for the emergency conference. And um, I've been involved in this space for a week while. So I've been at the National Library uh, researching pill testing and how it was being talked about in uh, the early 2000s in South Australia. The same sort of rhetoric. Uh, a young man then called Christopher Pine uh, was talking about the idea that pill testing sends the wrong message. And this is this sort of vague, quasi-religious messaging, you know, as if, for example, there is an elected group of people who somehow have fallen onto the right message, as if they have the right to determine what that message is. Because, of course, from an outsider looking in, it looks like that message is we're very prepared to allow a few people to die every year, as long as that serves as a lesson to others. I mean, the whole point about sending the wrong message is send the wrong message to whom? Mm. Who who is this message for? So I just want to bring again on on, on the politics of it, um, because in this case, I do think the Commonwealth is completely erroneous in their position in terms of pill testing. Um, I also um, I was the one who suggested to the Greens to put their hand up to take DEFCON, and unfortunately, it didn't work out mm. so well. But the reason I did that again is from a federal perspective, in the sense that Australia is a federal structure, and one of the Biggest potential of federalism is that cities and states and territories become policy laboratories. Yeah. They enact policy that may not be nationally accepted, that nationally we might not be ready to do. But we take a jurisdiction like the ACT, you start pill testing at festivals, you gather the evidence and show how many lives you've saved – and you and you do it, and then you show to other states, and then you have policy diffusion, and then you show to New South Wales, well, you didn't want to do it, but we've done it, and it's worked, and here's the evidence that it works, and then we have policy diffusion to other states, and then eventually the idea is that once we know it works, it's implemented in so many states that then the next step, always from a political perspective, is it becomes national policy, because we know it works, and it's already been implemented everywhere, so why don't we just make it a national policy? In the case of pill testing, as we've heard from the health experts, we know it works. We know it saves lives. So the best place to start it in terms of the pilots and the testing, which we're already doing in the AC, is to start it in a local jurisdiction, 
see how to do it well, see who can do it best, and then take that experience and 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 diffuse it to other places in order to the, the, by the time it goes national, we already know how to do it well because mm. it's kind of all and it's not political by the time it goes national because we know it works. So in that sense, I think the ACT did the right thing and they should continue fighting for it because they're the ones that are going to show to other jurisdictions that it works. And on that point, uh, I'm wondering if David could jump in on this. What what are the benefits of, of, of pill testing? What, are, what has been learned from the ACT and what can other states and the federal government learn from 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 what's the been happening in the, in the ACT again it's i mean living in australia it's very tempting for australians to say you know best olympics ever you know we're leading the world in pill testing and you know you're not you know you're you're about a quarter of a century again too late to the party um so we already have an absolute ton of data from overseas um generally speaking you can divide the um the, the benefits into an authority and an individual level. Um, so the authority level is that it allows you to monitor the market really, really well. Um, far better than if you were just trying to uh, interdict uh, customs or police seizures or do organized buys. You can monitor the market at a granular level. And then in the same way as we're already monitoring, for example, the, 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 the underlying models are identical to how we monitor the flu season. It's exactly the same thing. It's a public health exercise 101. If an undergraduate public health student from the ANU couldn't set up a federal pill testing monitoring system, I suggest that they probably should go into politics or something where they didn't have to think as much. Um, So there is that monitoring element. But perhaps more delicious for somebody like myself who's involved in direct health care is that at the point of consumption. So you've got young people who have run the gamut of, you know, in Australia, that involves dogs, it involves strip searches, it involves almost everything that doesn't work as far as drugs policy is concerned, concentrated at music festivals. And if you can get your drugs into a prison, which you can regularly around Australia, you can certainly get them into a music festival. There is no ingenuity like a young person who wants to get their drugs into a music festival. So you'll never have a drug-free music festival. Your only safety net, your only safety net is to sit down and say, come on now, do you want to have a chat about this? And that's what we offer. So we can provide face-to-face consultation with a currency that they crave, which is the identity of what is in their drugs. We know for a fact that what we were talking about earlier, the whole nature of prohibition has driven the number and variety of drugs on the global market through the roof, exponentially increasing that which this generation can consume. And the only way that we can interfere with the decision-making process of those people who, despite all the warnings, decide to use drugs is to show some compassion, show some understanding, and to provide them with data that they crave. And again, when that is done, we, we hear these daft arguments which are completely unfounded that it, it doesn't work for MDMA. It doesn't work for ecstasy. It's rubbish. You know, for decades we have seen and now it's been published that when young people – have a conversation, oftentimes for the first time they've ever had a reasonable conversation about drugs, one that hasn't come from the lips of a giraffe as it is in Australia. Um, They make and change decisions. So in uh, Portugal and in Spain, for example, uh, from the Boom Festival, even if 
what has been tested is shown to be just MDMA or ecstasy, which is what people are pursuing. You can change the way they consume that in such a way that they're far less likely to be harmed by those drugs. I, I'm not God. I can't make everybody not want to have sex or not want to use drugs, but I can certainly alter behaviors to make them far less likely to need medical care. And that's the point of pill testing. And, it's, and nobody is suggesting that we do it at some Catholic primary school down the road where they have to wear their hats or otherwise they don't get to play at recess. We're talking about the extreme pointy end of drug consumption. And, you know, we're not settled, obviously, with uh, festivals. At the moment, we're very deep into discussions about providing – because, of course, most deaths in, uh, from drugs don't occur at music festivals. They occur quietly, tragically, outside, at home. And so that testing process also needs to be offered outside the festival environment. And we're busy working on that now in the ACT because, as my colleague has said, the ACT can act as a sandpit, can act as a laboratory to develop policies and show – we can definitely punch above our weight here and show the rest of Australia – well, not, not what the rest of the world is doing but what they should be doing. Mm. And sorry, I just want to add a couple of points on that again from the policy perspective um, because I have just come from British Columbia. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know if anybody knows but British Columbia has declared a state of emergency because of our fentanyl crisis. Um, we have um, just a massive, massive opioid crisis but we've lost over 6,000 people in the last few years. We have morgues. We have so many overdoses from fentanyl and heroin that we have morgues that do not have any room anymore. They're having to – for people overdosing, they're having to take them further and further away because the morgues are all full. So we do have a very progressive policy. We have state, um, safe injection sites, which started in the city of Vancouver. Mm. The BC Supreme Court tried to object those because they were supplying heroin with it. They were actually supplying, again, product because the problem in, in British Columbia is that there's fentanyl in the heroin because it increases the profit margin of the producers. So they were supplying actual product as well in the safe injection sites. It has been challenged as well by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's, it's been years and years of battle. But going back again to also the ACT legalization debate and how this all fits in, as David just said, from a policy perspective, and this is why I do think Greg Hunt as the Minister of Health is completely in error in his judgments in the sense that it's only when the government is involved and especially when a product is legal and there is legalization, that the government and teachers and educators and social workers and nurses can have a conversation about something that is no longer an illicit drug. So in Canada now that it's legal, and I did interview all of the Vancouver School Board and primary schools, all the primary schools, young children, the teachers now are having discussions about cannabis, the negative effects. People are talking about how it affects your work. You can actually now get you can't you can't be under the influence of cannabis when you work, but now because it's legal, you can have those discussions in schools. When the government's not involved and just turns a blind eye and does the prohibition approach, then we're basically leaving it just to you know it becomes like anarchy. You're just leaving it to the street for people to figure out and die and figure out on their own because we can't enter into debate. So as politicians and government, when we do have government responses and we do get involved, it means that we can be part of the youth education and part of the discussion. It makes a big difference. Let's remember, of course, that you know this isn't just sort of the you know freaks of ACT 
pushing this idea upon the rest of Australia. There are now over a dozen professional medical bodies representing more than 25,000 doctors in Australia supporting trials of pill testing uh, in Australia and a, the result of a coronial inquiry calling for this to be introduced. So you'd be looking really hard in probably the Simpson Desert or some of the more remote areas of Australia for any qualified individual who would be prepared to stand up and say we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, I found found both what what David and Tracy were saying very moving. Um, And it was because in in both of your remarks – there was this sense of real people making real decisions, whether we're talking about teachers, social workers talking to people or kids at a music festival. Here are real people that we are trying to help and we are trying to think of a regulatory structure that, structure that actually facilitates that help. I think that on the other hand, when we look at the statements from the, from the federal government about all of these things, we are sending a message. The message that we're sending is – we don't care about your lives. We are not interested in compassion. We are don't, not interested in understanding. And frankly, we're not interested in a debate that has any relationship to facts or reality. That is a powerful message that we are sending about the broken state of our politics. And drugs is really just a lightning rod for a whole political system that keeps showing that it doesn't care about people. It only cares about point scoring. And to me, that is a devastating indictment of the political structures that we're, that we're dealing with. And if you look, start looking now, I mean, there is a growing body of evidence. And of course, Tracy will be across this. But the concept of the opiate crisis, particularly in rural areas of North America, uh, feeding into the narrative of this idea of it be, being a, a disease of despair. So the problem of drug use globally is one of – my life is crap. I will escape. Um, and, and, the, and the irony in Australia is that the very people who have um, – uh, who are saying that you have no right to use drugs and you know, the, the, the world would be better if you don't are the very people creating the conditions which are socially – which are driving youngsters who cannot afford a house, who cannot afford all the things that their parents – uh, had who are facing existential crises in the form of climate change. All of these things are not only it compounds the insult of saying you can't use drugs by creating the circumstances which actually drive young people into using drugs. I think we've had a lot of really powerful messages today and a lot of messages to government in particular. Unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time. But I'll, you know, as, as you know, often it's, it's quite hard to, to get information towards politicians and, and, and sometimes it needs to be a soundbite or you know, a, a short quote. So maybe starting with you, Tracy, uh, if you, uh, you – know, there might be a particular minister or there might be a, a particular type of policymaker or policymakers generally you – know, in a short snippet, what is it that you want to know? What's the key message? I think the key message I want is that the Commonwealth really needs to look at, I think, the Canadian model. I think we need national leadership. I think we need national debate. In Canada, there's bipartisan support. In the U.S. Congress, the pro-legalization is also bipartisan. It isn't no longer an ideological left versus right. Um, and, it, and we do need national leadership and national debate. And if they do want to pursue 
an export and an industry, in, you know, at a, a market that they're 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 developing in terms of medicinal cannabis, then they've got to take the conversation further with the with the subnational states and territories and enter into a dialogue there in terms of how are we going to regulate and govern this. Fantastic. And David, look, I mean, there's two sides to this coin. Um, I think the the opinions largely that have been represented uh, today um, are one side of that coin, and it gets back to this this tribalism within politics, this cultural cognition, and both sides of the tribal divide need to be able to sit down and have and have dinner, or play bridge, or knit together, and have a discussion about these issues. Because at the moment, there is very little rational discussion or negotiation. Um, behind closed doors, you hear politicians say, yeah, well, I can't do that right now. You, you have to do that right now because it's important. It's like climate change. Um, and I think the end, you know, the, you need to, like, God forbid, the, the mafia, um, you need to identify that which is important to those people who hold the strings of power. And, and, one of the things that defines our politi political colleagues is that they like staying in power. Uh, and one of the consequences uh, – this is not going to be decided by me, Des, Tracy or, or the politicians. This is going to be decided by parents, by parents who are devastated by the loss of their children or the loss of their liberty or their inability to travel internationally. And the flip side of the coin of the offer – of an olive branch to sit down and chat and be rational is that if you don't do that, you have a better informed, more politically active demographic than has ever been in Australia. If you don't sit down and have a yarn about the issues that matter to young Australians, you'll be out of a job. And Des, your key message? Well, so I, I think that the, you know, the one of the fundamental assumptions driving the opposition to harm minimization is the assumption that laws are in some way neutral. So that if we change the legal structure, we risk making things worse. We risk more use, more harm, young people smoking dope on the street. It's all just going to go to hell in a handbasket. That's the false assumption that I, that I would be zoning, zeroing in on. Laws are not neutral. They produce consequences and they produce unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences of the laws that we've had for a long time have been to make worse the very problems that they are said to be an effort to solve. We have to understand that our legal structures at the moment are causing the harms that politicians get up and rail about rather than helping. Well, it's been a real privilege for me uh, to, to be here and participate in the conversation. So thank you very much, Des Manderson, uh, David Caldercott, and Tracy Fenwick. Thank you so much, Desmond, Tracy, and David, for this extremely powerful discussion. So listeners, what did you make of that discussion? Please reach out to us. We're on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. We're on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar or shoot us a good old-fashioned email at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you personally want to improve drug policy, both on the local or on the federal government level, you might want to check out Crawford School's Master of Health Policy. You can find out more and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu forward slash study. 
As our regular listeners will know, each week we go over some of your comments and questions that you have sent us. And I'd like to start with an article by Simon Chadwick, Japan's Pivot to Sport. In this piece, Simon argues that Japan's success or failure in hosting both the Rugby World Cup and the Olympics will be critical for the country's future. And we had a comment by Jimmy H. on Policy Forum who wrote, The irony to me is that focusing more on sports seems like taking your eye off the ball. I believe governments should support health-related physical activity programs and leave elite sport to the market. If no one will ever pay you to spend time playing a game, I don't see why the taxpayer should. It's nationalism with no real benefit. Paul, can I pick your brains here as an economist? What do you think? Should taxpayers bear the cost of elite sport or rather than the market? Well, Yulia, I think Jimmy's raised a really interesting point here. Uh, a couple of things. I guess if we go back to first principles, taxpayer money should deliver some public benefits. Now, in the in the case of this particular World Cup, it's quite interesting reading the article about uh, you know, connecting the World Cup to Japan, opening up to immigration, and and looking forward to the future of the society and and those connections between sport and identity and and all these sorts of things. I think it's very interesting. Now, if we look at major sporting events like the Olympics, soccer World Cups. Uh, he, more recently, the, the public benefits haven't been that great. You look at all of the stadiums in, in Brazil, which are rotting now, uh, or, or the sporting facilities there, that you know, they're just these monuments to public excess and waste. However, uh, I think Jimmy's point there about uh, nationalism with no real benefit, I, I'm not sure exactly what nationalism means, but I think there is a very strong case in terms of public benefits from funding of elite sport, particularly at the national level. And I guess the case I would make for that is that it creates some social social capital, right? Now, I know, Yulia, you're a big fan of the Australian uh, cricket team, uh, the, the, the Australian football team, and of course, uh, the West Coast Eagles, which is my local AFL club. I do follow the soccerers, but on anything else, I probably have to take a pass. But I love the Brumbies. There you go. You love the Brumbies. And (laughs) the thing is, is that what elite sport, if we call it that, what that does is it brings people together. It does, yeah. It brings communities together. And at a national level, it brings people from all different uh, backgrounds and living in different parts of Australia together. And I think there are some real public benefits. And yes, it may be nationalism, but it's a nice form of nationalism. Sport, in some cases, at the national level, can be a bit nasty and associated with bad things. But I think in general now, it's it's nice nationalism. And I think that's a good thing. I think I, I would probably agree with you there. Because if I think about when I moved to Australia, I think I became a Brumbies member the same year and started going to games quite regularly. And that was sort of part of my integration into Australian culture as well. So, yeah, I, I can see your point there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jimmy H, for sharing your thoughts. And thank you so much for responding, Paul. So, Jimmy, if you want to respond to Paul or anyone else wants to respond to what we've discussed just then, you can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net.
Now, let's get to actually welcoming our new members to the Policy Forum pod group. We have had quite a lot of new people in the group and I would really like to say hi to them. But before I do, I will apologize and preface this by saying, please have mercy on me when I butcher your names. So I'd like to say hi to Vanessa Brown, Donna Scherling, John Nahum, Charvi Hander, Monmon Sonnenstern, Kendrick Chan, Hasper Brown, Gibran Habib, and Kate Caldwell. And a special thanks to Vanessa and Donna, who have already submitted their ideas for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. Both of them are actually very similar, and we've just talked about this on the podcast. So Donna wrote Homelessness and the Rate Campaign, and Vanessa wrote Poverty, Social Inequality, Political power structures. So something that we just discussed on the podcast last week with John Fowlson, Matthew Gray and Nicole Wiggins. A fantastic discussion. So if you haven't checked it out, I would definitely recommend you listen to that if you're interested in poverty and homelessness. So what are your thoughts on that, Paul? Look, I think these are really great topics. And, and even though you know there was a pod last week on poverty, I'm, I'm sure it's one that can be explored more in the future. For me personally, I, I, I was I was really affected by the powerful discussion that, that we just had. Uh, with regards to uh, drug policy. So I think it'd be really interesting if perhaps we can connect up that issue of drug policy with with homelessness and, and poverty. Fantastic suggestion there, Paul. I think it's definitely a topic, two topics that can be very easily connected with each other and something that we should be shedding more light on. So listeners, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast podcast providing platforms such as Stitcher or Spotify. This episode has been produced by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pears, post-production by Branko Svetjevic, and writing by Liliana Casabon-Mitchell. And we'll be back with another Policy Forum pod next week. But until then, for me, Julia, cheerio! Cheerio!